I am Camille Johnson, and this is Finding the Floor. Stories and reflections of midlife motherhood, family, and finding meaning in it all. Join me as I share a little piece of my life and figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding the Floor. This is episode 47, and today I'm going to talk about the book, The Power of Habits, Why We Do What We Do in Life and in Business by Charles Duhigg. I hope that's how you say his name. This book came out, I think, originally in 2012. It has two copyright dates, 2012 and 2014, so it's not a new book. So many of you have may already have read it. So if you have, that's awesome. And I hope that is totally helped you. I was looking for a book to listen to. And so I go into my Libby app. And if I don't have already have an idea of, let's say, an author I want to listen to, or if there's a book someone suggested, then I'll go to the section that says like available audiobooks and then you just scroll through anything that you know will be available right then and I'd seen this book before and was sort of interested and then I noticed it was available again so I thought well why don't I try it and I had done this thing before you know like looking for available books and that's where I found The Dale Carnegie book, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, which I thought was really good. So sometimes these older books you may not have read, but they're just have a ton of really good information. Not that this is like a super old book, but it's, I don't know, nine years old, 2012, almost 10 years old. That's crazy. So I guess originally when I saw this book, I thought it was like, how you can make your life better or I don't know what I was thinking about habits but what is so cool about this is it gets all deep into our brain and how and why our brain makes habits and it was funny today and I'm not a big social media scroller but I was trying to follow my son just has a new Instagram page so I need to follow him so I was following him and then it just goes into your feed and I noticed a friend of mine just posted that she wants to give up sugar and is anybody with her and it was funny because I read this book and I've been like now going through it to highlight things for this podcast and I was like oh you need to you need to read this book to really understand why it's so hard to give up sugar And then it'll give you tools so that you can do that successfully. Anyway, so that's what I'm going to share with you today. I don't have any really aside personal updates beside the fact that my kids are back in school now, like every day. And now it's so funny that they wish that they were back. (laughs) At least in hybrid, because they don't want to get up. It's just been a funny 
this morning. Ah, I just wish I could just roll out of bed and turn on my computer. I'm like, what? You said you hated that. And now you miss it? Ah, funny, funny. So there's some growing pains happening a little bit on getting up every day. You guys, we we did this before, pre-COVID, like every day. Oh, so funny. Okay. All right. So I am going to get into this book. And first of all, I just want to say that Mr. <laughs> Maybe I should have looked up how to say his name, but Dahig, he's a New York Times columnist or he writes for the New York Times and then he's written a this book and then another book, which I may read too, because this one has been really helpful. But the way he like weaves in all these stories that you don't think are related is just really cool. So it's not just like really dry. It's for me, a good story that I can relate to or that I can remember is one reason why I really like this book because I am if you give me a story or a background about somebody, then I'll be way more into something. So for instance, when my husband wants me to get into like watching the calves, he'll sit down with me at the beginning of the season and he's going to go over all of the bigger players and their background. And he's going to try to find someone that I'm going to like really like so that I'll kind of get into watching the calves. Otherwise, I'm like, what is the point of watching the sports? Like, there's no one I like. LeBron's gone. What is the point anymore? <laughs> that's why I watched it. Anyway, so that's why I loved it. It was like lots of awesome stories. So at the beginning of the book, he talks about this woman who is sitting down with a bunch of scientists and they've been studying her for a couple years. And when she came in, she was like overweight, in debt, couldn't keep a job for very long and was a smoker. And then right there, as they're talking to her, you find out that she's now has run half marathons. She's lost all this weight. She's out of debt. She's traveled a bunch and she now has had this great job for um, two to three years. So the study must have happened like a while ago. And they're trying to figure out what is the difference between people who like overcome some bad habits and people who don't. What did she do differently so that she can, that they can help people who are struggling to overcome things like overeating if they need to lose weight for their health or smoking or whatever, any stuff like that. So it's just kind of this cool beginning. Okay. And you get her whole story. What was just fascinating. And then he talks about this man named Eugene Polly, who you find out ends up getting viral encephalitis just coming down with it which is normally just something that our body can deal with but in rare cases the virus can like make it to the brain and cause 
like really catastrophic damage. And in his case, it like started tearing away the tissue that affected his memory. And sometimes they say where like thoughts and dreams reside and memories and quote unquote the soul of the person. But he could still function. He just couldn't remember anything. (laughs) He could remember things like before, I think, 1960. And this this happened, I want to say, in the late 80s or early 90s that this happened. And then he ends up getting studied by this doctor. And what is so fascinating about him they find out is that he physically can function, but he couldn't remember things. And there was a time where he would like wake up, go and eat some breakfast and then go back to bed. And then he'd forget that he had done that. And so he'd get up, go eat more breakfast and then go back to bed. And it was just like this big loop. Like his wife had to really help and monitor him to make sure he wasn't eating like breakfast 50 times a day. And then if he was talking to someone, it wouldn't be really obvious if there was anything wrong with his memory. He could like carry on a normal conversation. Um, so it was just really interesting. So they, this couple, this Eugene Polly and his wife would go on a walk every day, kind of as part of his routine to get him to exercise. And there was one day where she was doing something. They were getting ready to go on their walk. And then he just left. Like he went on the walk without her. And she kind of panicked because he doesn't know where he lives. He doesn't, couldn't remember a phone number or anything. So she's like calling her kids and the police to try to, see if they could find him because she's like he's never gonna make it back he doesn't know where he's going he can't remember anything and the crazy thing was is he made it back he just followed the same walking loop that they did every day and he just did that and he was able to make it home but he couldn't tell them like how he made it home or where the house was or like the numbers on the house. And so what was so fascinating about this is what they say is that there is the part of our brain and it's kind of in the middle. So it wasn't touched by this virus that he got and it's called the basal ganglia. And in that is what stores all of our habits or processes that we have. So he says in this book that the process in which the brain converts a section of action into an automatic routine is known as chunking. And it's the root of how habits form. So it's just like when you learn to walk, you don't have to think about how to walk every single day. Your brain's like, yeah, I know how to walk. That's in the basal ganglia or how to put toothpaste on your toothbrush or making lunches or getting dressed or the routine you have just driving to work. If you've ever started going somewhere, like this happened actually just yesterday, 
I was heading to Pet Supply Plus with my kids for their animals. And it's the same way I head to the grocery store. And I was sort of in automatic mode. And so I passed the pet store. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, it's just funny. So that's the part of our brain that the basal ganglia that stores all of these habits. And what they found out is even if you don't remember or consciously tell your brain to like, hey, start making a habit, it does it on its own. And if you remember back in the episode 33 and understanding like three functions of the brain. So this basal ganglia is the part of the brain that is in charge of chunking things together so the brain can save energy because that's one of the main jobs of the brain. Okay, so this Eugene Polly or EP as he became within the study world helped so much in understanding the brain and how it makes habits. So what was interesting in the book, it says habits, scientists say emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. But to make sure to also keep us safe and not just be on autopilot all the time, the brain uses what is called a cue to know which habit to begin. A cue is a trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and which habit to use. So then there is the routine. So you have a cue, whether whatever that is, and then the cue triggers your brain to start going into the routine. So like you're getting in the car and the brain's like, oh yeah, we're going to the store. I'm going to just go on automatic. We're going to go drive to the store mode. Um, Or it can be physical, mental, or emotional. And then there is a reward which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future. So because I'm going to the grocery store every week, and getting food that's fueling our body, my brain realizes that this is a good habit loop or chunk to remember. Anyway, just very cool. Okay, so that story was just like so fascinating. I just remember telling my kids like, can you believe this? This guy couldn't remember, but his body could remember crazy things like he couldn't tell you where the bathroom was in the house but he could remember how to get to the bathroom so he could use the bathroom or he couldn't tell you where the food was in the fridge or in the cupboard but he he knew how to get it and anyway just really really fascinating okay and that's just like at the beginning of the book you're like, whoa. And there's so many more things. So first, he talks about how you have this habit loop. So you have the cue, which triggers the routine, and then the reward. Okay. But then he says a lot of times habits occur because of cravings. Okay. And then he goes into two stories, how a lot of times like marketers or the marketing world, they kind of cater or try to get us to want to buy something because of a craving so that then we'll keep buying it, if that makes sense. 
So they talk about this guy, Claude Hopkins, who was a big marketer back in, I want to say the 30s. And he had been able to market all sorts of things, made tons of money. And he um, had this friend come and say, hey, I want you to start, help me market this toothpaste called Pepsodent. And he's like, I don't know. The toothpaste is kind of hard. And apparently that back in the early of the 1900s, a lot of people weren't brushing their teeth. Anyway, he ends up figuring out what would maybe create a habit loop for this toothpaste. Tries to find something that's going to trigger or want people to buy it. Okay, and he goes into all the story. But one thing I found interesting is that they said Claude Hopkins didn't actually realize that the Pepsodent created a craving. Okay, so... Then it talks about how they discovered like cravings happen and, it, and with the habits. So they go into the study of Julio, which is a monkey. And they um, have the study with Julio, this little monkey. And they have shapes on the screen. And if he pl- pressed a lever, he would get blackberry juice. And Julio loved blackberry juice. So... At first, they really couldn't get Julio to focus until he got the reward of the blackberry juice. And once he realized that if he pressed a lever, when he saw a shape of whatever kind, he would get blackberry juice. And so he would be so willing to do the game and get the reward. So as they're doing the study, they noticed that there would be a spike when he got the reward, like this dopamine hit in his brain. And what they noticed after a while is that he started anticipating the reward of the blackberry juice and his spike would actually start when he sat down to play the game, not when he got the reward. So he's anticipating the juice so the cue response was not only to the habit but also to the reward. And so it was saying that some of these habits create this neurological cravings. Okay. So then there was this crazy story about Febreze. (laughs) And it's funny because right when I'm reading this book, I was at the part about Febreze and my son was having an issue with his roommates, not cleaning, and having to spray Febreze everywhere because <laughs> it was smelly. And I was like, you know what? I just learned about the whole Febreze thing and how it came about. And it was just really cool. One of the chemists at P&G created this chemical because he was trying to figure out, he was a smoker and his wife complained about his clothes smelling. And so he's trying to figure out a, something that would just like neutralize the smell so he did he figured this out and they thought this was going to be so great like everyone was going to go crazy and this was like in the late 90s okay and even they did some test markets and they had this one story about this woman who was a a park ranger and ended up encountering skunks a ton and so she said her 
house, even if they're like just the remnant of skunk just stayed and she couldn't ever get rid of the skunk. And so she used the Febreze and was just crying because for the first time, like her house didn't smell like skunk and her clothes and she just felt like she could go out again and not be worried that she smelled like skunk. So they're like, oh my gosh, this is going to make us so much money. So they tried to market it like it's going to get rid of the bad smells, but it didn't do very well. And they were trying to figure out why. So then they go and visit a few more people who had the product and they go to this woman who has a ton of cats and her house is very clean, but she has a ton of cats and they walk in and they're like kind of overwhelmed by you know, like litter box smell, but she can't smell it. And that's another thing that's a problem with our brains too. Like our brains will filter out certain smells when we get used to them. So we're not overwhelmed by all these smells. And so that was another problem with Febreze. If you're going to market it, getting rid of your smells and you don't smell the smells, it's hard to use it. So they finally figured out I guess, how to make a craving for Febreze. And they came upon this woman who loved Febreze. And she said, it's just a little spritz at the end of my cleaning routine. So when I clean a room or if I'm making a bed, I just spritz a little Febreze and it's like, I know it's clean, that smell of clean. So they realized instead of marketing get rid of your smells, it's more market, just like it's the finishing off the smell of clean. And they added more perfume to it. So it had its own smell, but that it also gets rid of smells and it starts developing a craving. So people start craving the smell of Febreze because then that equals clean to them. So it's like their reward as they clean. Anyway, was so fascinating and kind of funny that I'm reading this and then my son's like, mom, it's like so stinky. (laughs) Okay, so what he says is the cravings we develop are what drive our habits. Okay, so you have a craving and then it's like a cue which triggers this habit loop your brain's remembering and then you get a reward, okay? There's the habit loop, cue, trigger, or the cue, the routine, and the reward. Okay, but then he kind of talks about like how do you overcome these things, like change habits, okay? And then he goes into like the golden rule of habit change, okay? So he's told you how a habit is formed. All right, we have our basal ganglia. It's chunking things so we don't have to, our brain doesn't have to make as much effort to do things. And then um, it creates this habit. But what if you've got started something that you don't want to continue? Like how do you go into changing? And so then he goes into the story of Tony Dungy, who is a football coach. He, I think the Tampa Bay 
Buccaneers and the Indiana Colts, I believe. He coached both those teams. And his job was not to necessarily, he wanted to just create new habits, but with the same cues and rewards. Okay. So his thought about changing a habit was you need the same cue or whatever is triggered, so your brain has the same cue, and then you just replace the routine. You need a new routine and then a reward. So he tells this whole story about Tony Dungy, which is really fascinating. I ended up having to look up him, and he's a really fascinating coach. And then he talks also about Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? But... Part of the thing about being able to change a habit or bad habit or something that you don't want to do anymore is belief. So in the Alcoholics Anonymous, the guy who founded it, his name is Bill Wilson. He said he found God and if he had a belief in a higher power to help him through the hard times, The other thing about this whole thing is it may seem straightforward to change a habit, but it actually is way harder. It can happen, but it's just a lot harder, especially if you're like addicted to something. So he just talks, so he's talking about the story of how Alcoholics Anonymous came to be and how all these 12 steps ended up looking for their cues and rewards and having meetings to support each other and sponsors as they built alternative routines to the things they were craving and they started to understand maybe what was the cue and why they would drink. Were they escaping? Were they trying to get relief? And as you go through the 12 steps, you're supposed to identify those cues. It doesn't really say in that wording, but that's what he was saying is that is what ended up happening with the 12-step program. And then he goes into the story back to the football team where there was a tragedy with Tony Dungy's son who ended up committing suicide. And the team, who was actually doing pretty good, like when they got into a game situation to not think like their habits would take over and they would just do what they would what they had been trained to do and not think too much and and he said but once they really believed that this could work that is when they ended up like winning the Super Bowl so you have to have a belief that you can change And he goes back to say the one thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is that you have someone who shares a story who has changed and that will help you also. If you see someone else who has changed, then he's saying you're realizing that belief is possible. Okay. And he says, belief is essential and it grows out of a communal experience, even if that community is only as large as two people. Okay, so as he was kind of saying, if you want to overcome a habit, you identify the cue and the reward and learn to replace a routine with something new. 
anyway, I just found it really interesting. But that's not really the end of the book. <laughs> it goes on to like talk about habits of a company and has this amazing story about this Alcoa company, which was it made aluminum siding and all, a lot of aluminum products. It was this really large company all over the world. And it talked about Paul O'Neill, who in the 80s came into this company to really try to fix things. And he had one main thing that he was going to worry about, which was worker safety. And that his main goal was that everybody was safe in the factories or wherever, that worker safety was his main priority. But because of that being the main priority, there were so many things that needed to change and shift within the company that it started developing this whole new culture. Because he said, all right, if there's ever an accident, I need to know within 24 hours. And then you also need to put in place what happened and you need to make sure there's a plan in place so that you know how to fix the problem. And so some of these plant workers and plant managers, because they knew this was serious, that if there was ever an accident, they um, had to make sure to have a plan in place. So they started like implementing these suggestion boxes if people had ideas of way to make everything more safe. So what he ends up talking about is like because of this safety goal by Paul O'Neill, he called it what is called a keystone habit. And this one habit caused so many shifts in the culture that it affected everything. Even they ended up like doing so well because everybody was safe and everybody started communicating better and it just seemed like it got the ball rolling with this one emphasis on safety. So in the book, he says, if you focus on changing or cultivating keystone habits, you can cause widespread shifts. And then he says, keystone habits offer what is known within academic literature as small wins. They help other habits to flourish by creating new structures and they establish cultures where change becomes contagious. So then you think you're done with that story. But then he goes into like the story of Michael Phelps and why Michael Phelps is like so amazing. I mean, there's just all these great stories within this book. And he just talks about how Michael Phelps coach started developing. He saw the potential when he was probably 12 or 13 of Michael Phelps. And he decided he to help him develop these habits. And one of which was to visualize each race, like every night. He called it, just watch the videotape every night. And he would just visualize every stroke. And he got so good at visualizing and having this like routine before a race that once he got to the race, he had developed all these quote unquote small wins that... Um, he was already winning so far so that imagining himself winning a race wasn't this impossible idea. I sort of wish I had known this back when I was a diving coach because I knew like when I was a coach and by the end of the season, you're at a big meet. I mean, there's not much you can change. I mean, there are sometimes were days where someone just miraculously 
makes this amazing dive and they haven't done that before. But you're trying to get to the point, usually the last two to three weeks of practice before the big conference meet was just getting your routine. Getting it to where, all right, what are your dives? What's your routine? What's the order? You want to get into a routine. And it makes sense. So once you get there, you don't think too much. It's already just in your brain. Your brain knows how to do the dive. And I think back, wow, I probably, if I had just said your brain knows how to do the dive, instead of like, I would just be like, okay, remember all these things. I tried to get in the habit before, but you know, anyway, it would have been so nice. Like you got this. We've been practicing all season. Just let your body do what it's been practicing for the past little while. So small wins. Talks about Michael Phelps and how he just developed this routine that would make these small wins. And I just thought, wow, that's sort of like in episode 39, how I talk about those small commitments we make to ourselves develops those small wins. So like, oh, I made my bed. You guys, I keep making my bed every day. It's a win for me. And it was interesting because they mentioned that making your bed is a keystone habit. Woo! (laughs) Small wins or exercising. They had all of these studies like if you decide to start budgeting, that can also have effects on the rest of your life or exercising regularly. You know, there's a bunch of keystone habits that if you start implementing, you have the small wins in your life and it has this, it rolls forward and has this effect on the rest of your life. Okay, so then there's like a whole section about willpower. I mean, he is very, very thorough. You know, if you want to, let's say my friend who says she wants to stop eating sugar, sometimes you think that's going to take willpower. And then he goes into like the study of how willpower is really more of a muscle than just this mindset. And sometimes if your brain has already had to deal with a lot of things, um, unless you make a plan that it's easy to just give in when you've had like a hard day or when you're emotionally exhausted, that your willpower muscle is kind of like tried to keep up for so long that it kind of just gives in. So he has this, the story of like Starbucks and how they train their employees. Even he goes into Target and their marketing and how they market towards our habits. Anyway, just a lot of really great stories. So, but then he not only talks about how we can change and how companies can change, but then he talks about how we can change societal habits. And he talks all about like, the civil rights movement and how simply a change of habit among friends when Rosa Parks was arrested for sitting in the front of the bus and they created this whole bus boycott and he said the community was pressured to stand together for fear that anyone who didn't participate wasn't someone you wanted to be friends with in the first place. So there was this like habit of friendship and um anyway it's that is all 
all so interesting. He goes into the whole story. But at the end of the book, like at the appendix is the really practical part of how he says like, I'm going to tell you how to apply all these things. And he kind of shares one habit that he tried to overcome. So again, so interesting because you hear stories about Michael Phelps and Rosa Parks and the Alcoa Company and Febreze and Target and Starbucks and Eugene Pauly and all of these other people, Alcoholics Anonymous and how all these things, somehow they fit into this idea of habits, okay? So interesting. And so he then shares how he had this habit every afternoon of going to the cafeteria where he worked and getting a cookie. And he had like gained eight pounds. He was just wanting to lose weight. So he knew he probably shouldn't get the cookie. And so he would write a note like, no more cookies. But he would still like have this urge to get up and grab the cookie. And so he decided to use this whole process. So first he identified the loop, right? He said he gets up, what's the cue, the routine, and the reward. And he said he takes each of these steps one at a time. And what I loved about this was that it wasn't like he was like judging and shaming himself for getting the cookie every day. He started just like, okay, I want to change this habit. And I've done all this research about habits. So let's get into what I really need to do. Like I need to change my routine, but I also need to understand what is the cue or the trigger that starts me going into this habit loop and what is the reward that I want or that, I, that I'm receiving. So he decided to start with the reward first because he said sometimes it's hard to get the cue because there's so many things that is going on in our life. So he started with figuring out what the reward was. Was it he wanted a distraction? Did he Was he hungry for some sugar? And so he just decided to do this test every day. He would kind of do something different. So instead of getting a cookie, he'd get a donut. Was that it? Or instead of getting a cookie, did he need to just go talk to a friend? What did he need to do? And he said he would go do the thing and then he'd go and sit down and wait 15 minutes to see if the craving went away. And then he said he would write three words down on like a sticky note that would kind of identify thoughts he was feeling or identifying with just right in that moment so he would remember So he went through this like very scientifically, okay? He figured out that it was he needed a distraction and a little bit of time to gossip with some friends. That's what he really needed because when he got his cookie, he would like go and get it and then whoever was in the cafeteria, he would chat with them for a minute. So he figured out that was what he needed. And then he said to figure out the cues, he said it's really hard because there's so many things. So he mentions that the way you find the cue, you notice the location, the t- the time, the emotional state, other people, and the immediately preceding action. Okay. So when he started getting the craving, he started writing down, where are you? 
So he would write down all these questions like, where are you? What time is it? What is your emotional state? Who else is around? And what action preceded the urge? So he did this for three or four days with those five questions. And he figured out that it was just a time of day. Like all the other things changed except the time of day. It was always between three and four in the afternoon. So he realized his cue was the time of day and his reward was a temporary distraction and kind of like little connection with friends. So he decided to make a plan to develop a new routine. And so he said, at 3.30 every day, I will walk to a friend's desk and talk for 10 minutes. So he made this plan. The cue was the same, same time. He changed the routine and the reward was going to be the same. Was that he needed that boost of connection. So he said at the beginning, he started just setting an alarm And he kind of had times where he still went and got the cookie because that was hard. But eventually, when the book was published, he had been doing this for six months. And now he didn't even have to set an alarm. He just knew that around that time, he would get up and try to find someone to chat with for 10 minutes. And that is what changed his habit. This book is really, really fascinating. It goes very in-depth. I mean, because there's a couple chapters that I didn't even mention, like are we responsible for our habits and talks about this woman who had this crazy gambling habit. And so very, very deep stuff and very interesting. Um, And it just, now I see things As I go about life, like, wow, okay, that's a habit loop when, you know, just, oh, doing the laundry. I don't have to think about what to do when I do the laundry. And it's funny how sometimes when you get in a habit loop, you forget how, like I notice when I'm trying to teach my kids something, sometimes I forget to tell them everything. (laughs) Also, sometimes I forget to even finish my sentences with my poor kids. So one thing I noticed at our house is that probably this year for some of you as well is that we formed kind of some bad habits as we've stayed home. (laughs) Like we went out for a hike um, last week and it was like, I haven't been out in a while. Was My cute daughter was like, yeah, I haven't been out in a while. And before, you know, I'd always be going out, we'd be doing things. But the other thing I've noticed is that right after school, my kids just want to take a moment to like veg after school. And we have been fighting this for a while because I want them to like do their homework, practicing, chores, like let's just get that out of the way. And so I've been trying something new is allowing them like two shows that are like 20 minutes or one show or I allow them till a certain time of the day after they come home. So it's about 40 minutes that they can kind of like just watch something and veg, whether it be watching a YouTube video or whatever. And then I notice I just cut that off and they're so much more willing to do things. So that's a new thing we're trying because I had been fighting this old routine, but I noticed they're very more willing to do more things like once they get their veg time. So I don't know if that's like a good, going to be a good thing or a bad thing, but (laughs) 
that's something we're trying, a new habit loop in our house. If you guys are interested in like changing a habit or starting something new, this was really a fascinating book. And if you've already read it, then awesome. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't, I would just get the audiobook or, you know, get the book. I always feel like I have to get an audiobook because then I can like, I would listen to it while I do my decluttering on, <laughs> on my Fridays, which I'm still doing, and when I take my dog for a walk. So I just have something to listen to or if I was in the car, but lately we haven't been in the car as much as I used to be. Anyway, so good, so in-depth, lots of really interesting stories. I would totally recommend this book. Um, okay, guys, I hope this wasn't too crazy long, but there was a lot of stuff I wanted to share. So good luck with your habits and just even noticing that you have all these habit loops and how cool your brain is is pretty awesome. All right, have a good week and thanks for listening. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions, come by findingthefloor.com where I will have show notes and links for anything I've mentioned today. Special thanks to Seth Johnson for creating and performing the theme music. Come back next week and thanks for listening. 